Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 183 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. And hey, I want to say a shout out to the growing number of business leaders who have found this podcast. We're hearing from you. Actually, our partners on the podcast are hearing from you. And I think that's awesome. I mean, that was kind of my start out and was before ministry. I was in law. And so I spent some time in law, absolutely loved it, and then actually experienced a call into ministry. And whether you are trying to live out your faith in the marketplace or find faith in the marketplace or even just explore leadership, we just want to say welcome. So glad you're here. Um, Hey, and I got a question for all of you who are listening right now. We know from what iTunes tells us that the vast majority of you have subscribed to the podcast, but let me just tell you about my experience with subscriptions. First of all, in podcast world, they're free. This is like totally free to you. Uh, But I always intend to listen to things. And, you know, people tell me, oh, this is a great podcast. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. If I don't subscribe, I don't listen. It's plain and simple because I go into my podcasting app, which is Overcast. And if I don't see it on my list, I just end up not listening to it. So if you've enjoyed this or you've enjoyed previous episodes and you haven't subscribed, would you do that right now? That would be awesome. And then even if you're really finding this great, share this with somebody in your world that you think this could make a difference for. Because we're going to go into some really interesting places in this episode. My guest is Todd Wilson. Last month, I was with him and about 5,000 of you at Exponential in Florida. And man, Todd founded it along with Dave Ferguson. And I've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. And he just let something slip. Last time he was on the podcast, he's like, you know, like when I was in the nuclear Navy. I'm like, what? What is that? And so we've been talking about it, and I said, let's do a whole episode on this. And this is like a crazy leadership. Like, this is almost like the Navy SEALs of engineers. It's it's crazy. And uh, Todd shares a wealth of leadership insight, whether you're leading a church, whether you're in a business, or just leading something on your own, I think you're going to love it. So uh, Todd Wilson's my guest this week, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First of all, Rethink Leadership, Selling Out Quickly, would love to have you join us in Atlanta next month. It happens in just over a month. You can go to RethinkLeadership.com, join me, Andy Stanley, and many, many other great leaders from the business and the church world. To get in, you need to be a senior pastor, campus pastor, teaching pastor, and it also buys you access to the Orange Conference across the street when it's over. Uh, you can go to RethinkLeadership.com. And then Canadians, come hang out at the Canadian Church Leaders Conference. Uh, we already would be sold out if this was last year, but we added more seats. So we have a little bit of room for you and your team. Would love to have you join us north of Toronto at Conexus Church. We're even going to hang out in my backyard, okay? On the Friday night, we're doing an after party. It's going to be a blast, CanadianChurchLeaders.ca. And Scott Magdalene has been leading the way, speaking of people who are making a difference, in helping just thousands, I mean, I think at this point, maybe tens of thousands of church leaders get trained as though it was 2018. And isn't it about time? I mean, the old model of training is dying. Technology allows you to reach 100% of your volunteers, not only with safety training, but even with your mission, vision, values, the whole deal. And in meeting with Scott, I asked him a question, a really interesting question. I said, so can you fire a volunteer? And if so, how do you fire a volunteer? 
No, you are stuck with every volunteer you have. As now. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, yeah. So, uh, so in my experience, and I'm going to base this on my experience, which granted is not a ton. You know, I'm 33 years old, so I've been in ministry about 15 years. But here's what's worked for me in the past. And I'm going to assume that this kind of little step-by-step thing is on the back end or after you've already had multiple in-person conversation with them, trying to get them to either overcome their challenges or to re-engage or whatever it is, you're at the point of saying there's no more hope. They just need to not be on my team anymore. Um, Number one, I would say is uh, having a conversation with them. It needs to be an in-person conversation with them um, to let them go or to help them understand that they need to find a new team. It should not be a text message or a phone call or an email telling them, please don't show up next time. It needs to be in-person. Remember, we're ministers. We're working with people helping to shepherd them. Um, Number two, that in-person conversation would, would, in the best case scenario, have a second person, a second leader there present. That way there's no room for accusation of bad words or any hurt feelings or anything like that. And number three would be helping to find a next step for them. So just firing them and then let it, like letting them drift off into the into space is not really helpful for them. And I know you're trying to, as a leader, keep your team healthy and keep your team co- you know cohesive together. And maybe that person is hurting that or hurting your momentum. But that person is also somebody we're shepherding. So we want to find a next step for them, whether that's a, a step towards spiritual growth or if it's a step toward volunteering in another area that's more suited to them. Helping them on that next step is a big part of what we do as shepherds. Well, surprise, surprise. Uh, You do need to sometimes deal with volunteers. And actually, you know, the ones that you keep are going to be so thankful that you've created a better culture. Hey, one of the best ways you can make sure that you have excellent volunteer standards throughout your organization is to train everybody. And you want to check out trainedup.church. Uh, Scott has put together and his company have put together a premier training program for your volunteers. Whether you are a very small church or a mega church, there's a pricing plan that works for you because it really depends on the number of volunteers. So it totally scales. Check it out at trainedup.church and use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, at checkout and you will receive 10% off for life like forever. So just head on over to trainedup.church, use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off. So thank you, Scott, for that, for listeners. And in the meantime, let's jump into my conversation with Todd Wilson. Well, Todd, welcome back. It's so good to have you back on the podcast. Carrie, it's great to be here. It's been over a year since you and I talked about doing this session, so I've been uh, really looking forward to it. Well, you just said nuclear Navy, and I'm like, huh, are you kidding me? And you're, the last time you were on, we talked about calling. And that actually went on to become one of the top, I don't know, 25 episodes ever on the podcast. So we'll link to that in the show notes. But you really helped a lot of people figure that out. And this time, we are going to drill down on the nuclear Navy. That just sounds so cool uh, and probably a little bit ominous. But that was where you got started as a, as a young leader. In, in leadership, and really it was kind of your first job. Uh, tell us, first of all, what is a nuclear Navy? And give us some context on your time there before ministry. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Carrie. even linking, saying nuclear Navy and personal calling in the same sentence might seem odd, but for me, <laughs> uh, it is all part of the journey. You know, I, I'm sure. one of those weird people that age uh, 12 or 13 knew what I wanted to do with my life, uh, knew I wanted to be a nuclear engineer by age 12. And, uh, you know, spent ultimately 15 years in the nuclear Navy, which I'll tell you a little bit about here in a second. But in retrospect, it was those 15 years in the nuclear Navy that really were building the story 
uh, into ministry for me. So I, it's kind of strange for me to think about, but I've now been in ministry, full-time vocational ministry for longer than the 15 years in the nuclear Navy. And the reality is my time in the nuclear Navy um, was such a profound shaping thing on my leadership and on who I am that the reality is my roots of how I act and behave and lead at this point just tie back. So I'll warn you as we get into this that uh, I'm an engineer. I normally, you know, I, I'm a whiteboard guy. So if we were on a right. video, we could be doing whiteboards with people would be a whole lot easier. So I'm going to do my best on audio to paint some pictures of some things we talk about. But yeah, it sounds ominous to say nuclear Navy. Um, the, the reality is um, when you hear nuclear Navy, you probably think weapons and missiles. But in reality, nuclear Navy, people don't realize all of our submarines in the U.S. Navy and all of our aircraft carriers are powered by nuclear power. Okay. And so in Because the there's ship, like no, no place to refuel in the middle of the Pacific. Is that right? That's exactly right. And at this point, it's hard to believe, but a, a ship that's going to you know, last 30, 40, 50 years, the technology at this point, they never have to be refueled. They fuels put in in the beginning and they go their whole life without having to have uh, new fuel put in. So from a technology standpoint, it's, it's just amazing. And the real uh, importance of nuclear power when we say nuclear Navy is propulsion and so when, when we talk about nuclear Navy and the context we're going to talk about here today, we're talking about the engineering side of the, the design, the overhaul, the maintenance, the operation, all aspects of the nuclear power that propels the ships. People don't realize, but all around the world right now, including in ports in the United States, there are operating nuclear reactors a couple hundred yards from people. Yeah, I had no idea. We think about nuclear power plants that get all kinds of attention in the news, and yet you've got a submarine that goes in and out of port from sea and is sitting next to a pier in cities hundreds of yards from the public with an operating nuclear reactor. So I want you to think about the significance of safety and how profound the, the issue of safety is. Um, the Naval Reactors Program, which is what I was part of in the Nuclear Navy, they were responsible for all aspects of, of that nuclear propulsion plant. And for perspective, um, in the history of the Nuclear Power Program, going back to 1947 now, um, we have over 6,500 years of reactor operation and over 100 million miles of ships traveling on nuclear power with not one nuclear accident. I was going to say, like, I, I can't even remember a story in my lifetime of like, you know, nuclear submarine blows up outside of San Francisco. Like, it just, you don't, it, you don't hear that. It's out of sight, out of mind. And that's a testament to the strength of the Naval Reactors Program. Um, Naval Reactors, this group of 350 engineers um, started by Admiral Rickover, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and this group of 350 engineers, um, they really are probably the premier engineering organization in the world. What the SEALs are within the military, kind of naval reactors is, you know, NASA turns to naval reactors when they have problems. I mean, it's like the premier kind of engineering thing. So for me, what leads to kind of this conversation on leadership lessons from the nuclear Navy is, you know, Jim Collins in his Good to Great talks about cult-like cultures and right. finding the good to great organizations. 
Naval reactors, Collins stumbled into naval reactors for what it's worth before he did the social sectors book. And naval reactors meets all of Collins' good to great criteria, every one Mm. of them. And so naval reactors has this thing called the naval reactors way or the naval reactors cult-like culture. And that's much of what you and I will kind of talk about here today. How at 12 or 13 do you decide you want to work in the nuclear Navy as an engineer? It's interesting, and it and it does go back to calling, Carrie. It's kind of like when you and I were talking, and I was even mm-hmm. helping to pack some of the background in your life. Usually, you great. can look back to when somebody's a kid, and you can see the patterns. And we saw it in your life when we unpacked. Yeah, it. we you did can see the things as a kid that lead to what you do later. And for me, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in chemistry class at age twelve. And I'm we didn't even have whiteboards. It was a chalkboard. And the chemistry teacher's drawing a picture of an atom and neutrons, protons, and electrons flying around it. I went home. I was mesmerized. I went home that day and said, I want to be a nuclear physicist. And within a year, I had done some really cool, innovative stuff at my house. And my parents said, you don't need to be a nuclear physicist. You need to be a nuclear engineer. And so that... Uh, that's kind of what led into by age 13. You know, I know I want to go into nuclear engineering. Now, the, the link to the nuclear Navy, the Navy knew how to do recruiting. When I was in college, um, we'll, we'll talk in a minute, a minute about the process, but um, the Navy started recruiting me my sophomore year. And what they would do is they would imagine you're a guy in college and they, they take you for a weekend, in my case, down to Charleston, South Carolina. And for a whole weekend, they let you crawl around in submarines and crawl through ships and they get you all psyched up about, uh, you know, being in ships and what ships do. And so that that's what drew me actually into the idea of being in the Navy. So they do have a pretty strict hiring process that almost nobody makes it through at Naval Reactors, which is the division of those 350 engineers. Um, talk about how you got hired and how the process is a reflection of what you call the NR way. Yeah, it, it, the hiring process there really is a good glimpse into what I would say is an entire set of discipline processes. So here's how the hiring process works. Naval Reactors has a profile of the kind of person they're looking for. Now, here's okay. the first thing you need to know. Admiral Rickover, the founder of the nuclear Navy, would not hire anyone except a college graduate. He yeah. felt like, I want to be able to shape and mold and train somebody. I don't want to have to deal, you know, I don't want to have to take somebody who's already been set in their ways. I'd rather be able to train and mold somebody, um, you know, right out of college. Hmm. So the first thing you need to understand is that here's the premier engineering organization in the world staffed 100% by people right out of college. 22-year-olds, yeah. So that tells you something about the leadership development pipeline, about the process of developing people. But um, in the recruiting and hiring, my sophomore year, I met the profile of what they were looking for, an engineering background. Um, They're looking for people who already have demonstrated leadership capacity, you know, whether it's The president of a club, or you know, there's already some evidence of leadership. There's something on your resume. You're the captain of the team. The captains of teams. The, the but they, they don't want to have to figure out later whether you've got the raw ingredients of leadership. They want to see that it's already there. Yeah. Um, and so 
what they do is they will only interview the top 1% out of the best schools. So you get invited into Washington, D.C., and the higher you, you can go Google and look up, you know, Admiral Rickover and Nuclear Navy hiring stories. It's it's just comical, even some of the stories of people being interviewed. Here's how it works. Um, my first interview, I had five interviews that day. Hmm. OK, my at my first interviews with a junior engineer there that started off with him telling me, why in the world would you want to work here? Right. In other words, get out of here. Right. Get, Everybody here is a geeky engineer. They wear pocket protectors. I'm like the guy's trying to talk me out. Here I am in the interview, and he's trying to talk me out of being there. Right. That's all start. That's all the start of kind of that cult like culture thing. That this isn't for everybody. You then have three technical interviews, and all three technical interviews are with senior leaders of the organization. We're talking executive level government mm. people. And these interviews are, you know, things like, you know, I, I walk into one and the guy's got this little gizmo on his desk that you rotate a thing by hand and it makes it kind of makes an oval shape. And he says to me, what shape's that making? And I said, an oval. He said, all right, you've got about two minutes. Derive the formula of that oval for me. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just I'm back on the street. Okay. Stuff like that. And they also not in a mean way. But there's a lot of mind games because they want to see how critical you think. So, for example, two of my three interviewees had traded offices. And so when they sent me to meet with them, they wanted to see if I could recognize that the two people were not in their normal offices. How would you know and that? So, Just by the name on the door? By the or name what? tag on the, yeah. Oh, okay. The, the, Are you the, that observant? The name tag on their, their office. Yeah. And then... That's that's the second, third, and fourth interview. Your fifth interview is with the four-star head of the nuclear navy. So <laughs> every that's like a four-star general. It's the head. It's as high as it yeah. gets. Four-star admiral that runs the whole nuclear navy. I mean, it's as high as it gets. And the head of the nuclear navy interviews each twenty-two-year-old coming in. Wow. And so I want you to imagine you're in my case, I'm twenty, and I'm sitting in front of a four-star admiral now. That's where the stories get really funny. Rick over, you know, people may not realize this. Jimmy Carter was in the nuclear Navy. And Jimmy Carter tells the story of sitting in front of Rick over doing his interview with Rick over. And it, you, I mean, you get grilled with questions. You, there's no right answer. Which class did you get your lowest grade in? Oh, I got a, a B in English. Why'd you get a B? Did you try as hard as you could have? Could you have done better? Now, now let me ask you, if a four-star admiral says to you, could you have done better? <laughs> right? Of course I could have done better. And then, the, and then what's the next thing? Then why, why didn't you do didn't better? You do better. So anyway, you go through this interview, <laughs> only the best of the best get in. And then here's what they do. Every person comes in with a five-year military commitment as a junior officer. Yeah. And and during that five years, what they're really doing is looking to see if you fit the culture and they throw you into more responsibility than you can handle. And here's the key of the 350 engineers, the attrition rate when I went in, only three of the 350 engineers would leave each year by retirement at that point. Man. So what they would do is they would bring in a new class of 25, 22 year olds out of college watch you for five years, and out of those 25 top 1% candidates, 
they would only pick three of the 25 to stay on beyond the five-year commitment. Man. If that makes sense. So it, yeah, it does. Be a kind of a, an idea of how start with just 22-year-olds, bring them in for five years, be really selective, see that in that first five years, they fit the cult-like culture, and then only invite three of the 25 to stay on. So, Todd, I'm so glad you, you know, you're telling us this stuff, but you've also got a, a, uh, a foot firmly planted in church world. I mean, as the president of Exponential and so much else that you've done, you also realize that 90% of the people listening to this podcast are desperate for more leaders in their church. And if you started with that, like, do you do you just have that super tight select? I tend to be very careful about who I let on my teams, which is probably yeah. one of the reasons they're small. Um, but what, like, what is the principle there as it applies to to a lot of church leaders who are like, I will take three volunteers who got Fs in English. It's fine. Um, what's the principle? You know, it's. It- it's interesting because when I went into ministry out of Naval Reactors as an executive pastor, that was a big issue for me to have to deal with because I'm coming out of a culture where you only want the best of the best and you only want people that fit the cult-like culture. Right. Um, What I had to come to grips with is obviously the best of the best. I'm not even sure there's a biblical basis on the best Mm. of the best part of it. It's, you know, the mobilization of the priesthood of all believers, you know, all sinful God gives us the people. Now the issue of the cult-like culture, how do we build faith communities that people are so sold out to the mission and the cause and the values that it is a non-negotiable that in our leadership development pipeline, people are, are, are just raving fans of and disciples of that cult-like culture. And so I, I think the cultural part, you know, is is where it is. And that's really what Admiral Rickover, that's his true legacy, is not so much the specific mission. It's not so much the specific impacts. It's the legacy that he's leaving behind by this disciplined application of a set of values that are just relentlessly lived out. Yeah, and there's lots of examples of cult-like culture. I mean, Chick-fil-A would be one of them, you know, that that, that it's got this incredible fan base and so on. And there are football teams and uh, the whole deal. So I think I get that. And, you know, I would even say to small church leaders, um, you can be more selective than you think. You can be more selective than you think. Okay, well, let's keep going. Uh, You joined right after a very famous admiral who we've already talked about, Admiral Rickover. I knew that name, just retired, and he left quite a legacy. So Tell us about him and the legacy he left. He founded the nuclear Navy, did he not? Right. He's he's known as the father of the nuclear Navy. Um, there's a whole lot of people that would say he was crazy. I mean, he, uh, yeah. I don't think he was, but there's a lot of people who would say he was. He was just very focused, very nutty. Um, he served on active duty for 63 years. Um, that's the <laughs> longest serving military person in history. Um, Congress had to give him waivers year after year to be allowed to stay on. Um, you know, just think 63 years in in military service. So he would have been in his um, 80s when he, he retired. He, he died at 82. And I, I believe he was probably close to uh, 80 when he was retiring. So, My yeah, goodness. it was it was pushing. He um, was a Jewish immigrant from Poland, went to the Naval Academy here. 
Um, he is one of the only people in history, a couple of people that got two gold uh, Congressional Medals of Honor. Um, in 1947, uh, before there really was nuclear power, um, even before any commercial things, we had the bombs, but not the actual peaceful uses. He saw the opportunity in it uh, relative to nuclear submarines. And Admiral Nimitz, who was one of, you've heard the name Admiral Nimitz, have, yeah. one of the key military leaders at the time, Rickover as a junior officer got to Admiral Nimitz and convinced him that the nuclear submarine was a good idea. Um, Rickover was named the head of the project in 49. And what is just amazing is that the project was started in 1949 on a technology that was not yet even in existence. And five years later in 1954, the first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, went to sea. So mm -hmm. from conception to taking things to sea was a five-year time period. Now, what I like to say about Admiral Rickover, um, one of the guys on our team, Ralph Moore, Ralph is one of what we call level five multiplication leaders in America. Ralph has uh, started or his church has helped start over 2,400 churches. Um, he's kind of a present day apostle Paul. And Ralph uses this term monomaniac on a mission. It actually comes from Peter Drucker out of uh, leadership and management. But a monomaniac on a mission is a Steve Jobs. It's a Jack Welch. It's Think of those leaders who are so razor focused on a mission that nothing else can get in the way. Yeah, um, that's Admiral Rickover. He's a he's a monomaniac on a mission. Um, his legacy, the safety record of sixty five hundred years of operation and and everything. Um, he really has partly contributed contributed to the winning of the Cold War for the U.S. Um, I would say the biggest impact by far is. Uh, not all those accomplishments, but it's this NR way. It's this, for me personally, it's been 18 years since I was in the nuclear Navy, but I can't get rid, I can't shake off the NR way. It's just yeah. part of who I am at this point. So what he does is he has a system. It's not training. It's not some gimmick. It's when you're part of naval reactors the NR way just becomes embedded as part of your DNA. And so if we could go map in the engineering fields over the last 50 years, the companies that have started, the technologies that have been founded that grow out of the roots of Admiral Rickover's way of doing things. Um, many people argue that he's uh, probably, possibly the greatest engineer in the history of our country. So that's sort of Man. Admiral Rickover in a, in a nutshell. So that made him incredibly influential. It was his brilliance, it was his innovation, but it was also the naval reactor and our way that you keep talking about. So let's jump in and talk about some of the specific leadership learnings from your time at Naval Reactors. When you look back now, um, what are some of the top distinguishing characteristics of the NR way? Like there's values, um, Admiral yep. Rickover embedded, uh, what are some of them that are like, these are the top ones for you? Yeah, you know, um, I gave a little bit of thought before we got on this call. Just uh, I'd never done this before, but writing down four or five, six things that yeah. I thought, you know, what really are the distinctives? And, and, and let me just do a quick fly through. I, I would say, first and foremost, um, we never talked about mission or our mission the way church that we do in churches today. Yeah. We never talked about our vision the way we talk about in churches. Okay. Mm. And here's the deal. We had amazing clarity of mission. 
but we never had to talk about it. And, and that's partly attributed to Rickover. He just so instilled our mission into everything that we never had to use the words. You know, one of the definitions of values is values are those things that are so deeply ingrained in your in who you are that you don't ever have to use the words. Um, right. When naval reactors turned 50, the admiral in charge at the time, Admiral DeMars, was being interviewed by the vice president. And the vice president said, what's the secret to excellence at naval reactors? Now, here's the thing, Carrie. I had been at Naval Reactors for over 10 years at that point when I heard him ask that question. And the first thing I thought, and I turned to the person next to me, was to say, excellence. Man, we never use that word. <laughs> and Admiral DeMar said to the vice president, and this is a quote, excellence is a concept so deeply ingrained into this organization that we never have to use the word. And hmm. so I would say to you that Naval Reactors' mission was so deeply ingrained that we just didn't have to, to use the word. How um, did you pick that up? That's so counterintuitive to the way so many people lead. Like, if you had to articulate it, you're writing the mission statement yeah. for naval it, reactors. What would you say it is? Yeah, let, let me tell you how it grabbed me at age 22, okay? Yeah. I said earlier, 6,500 years of operating subs with no accidents, 100 million miles. Our mission is rooted in safety. Okay, mm. it's it's safe operations of nuclear ships all around the world and in ports. Now, here's what happened to me when I was 22. I came to Naval Reactors and my boss sent me down to Norfolk Naval Shipyard where we've got a bunch of nuclear ships. And here's what he said to me. He said, I want you to go out on a Saturday morning to the pier where there's an aircraft carrier getting ready to go to on deployment for six months. And I want you to just go watch what happens on that pier the morning the ship's getting ready to leave. And so that was my direction. Uh, I had no idea what I'm going to find when I get there. I'm 22 years old. I'm on this pier, and you know it's 5,000 people on an aircraft carrier. And here's what's happening on the pier. All kinds of mothers with little kids mm. are kissing and hugging their dads goodbye with tears in their eyes because they're not going to see their dad for six months. Okay. And here's, here's the deal. And I'll make the link to ministry on this one. Okay. I'm 22 years old. I go back and my boss says, I don't want you to forget the tears in those mothers and kids eyes. Wow. Because your responsibility, you, your job, your role here may make the difference in whether that dad comes back safely to his kids and wife or not. Okay. Man. Now here's the deal. Let me jump to the church because I think we get so hung up on mission and vision and all the stuff. Here's the deal. If hell is real. Yeah. Okay. If hell is real, why aren't we creating in our church staffs the same set of urgency that a set of tears and a mom and kids can give on the pier. Mm. Okay. It, here, here's the thought for me. If only I could send my staff, this is when I'm, you know, at the church, each new staff member, if there was some way to temporarily for a few minutes, send them to hell so they could see their family members and friends in hell, would it create a whole new set of, of, urgency on mission. And so 
you know, for me, in this question of what was unique at Naval Reactors, Naval Reactors had a way of creating clarity and urgency on mission that we in general haven't figured out how to do in the church. Wow. Now, the closest thing that I've been able to do, like I, I about 30 minutes from work and I live in, in a Manassas, uh, the first and second battles of the Civil War of Manassas. I have to drive past the battlefields to get to work. Hmm. Now, there's other ways I could get to work, but a lot of times I will choose to drive through the battlefield because on these, ba- it literally in a couple of days, thousands of people died. And I have to remind, what I'll do sometimes driving to work, church, is I'll remind myself that thousands of people died on these fields for a lesser cause than where I'm headed today. Mm. And so this idea of how we create urgency on the cause and the mission, um, that's really the first of the Naval Reactors things. Um, The idea of responsibility and ownership, Rickover was just a nut about responsibility and ownership. Um, I'd say a third thing, um, Rickover unapologetically started with leaders and made and worked on building them into good managers so they could be great leaders. And and again, if I'm going to make the link to the church, we have to have great leaders. What's happened in the last 50 years if you went back 50 years ago, quality gurus, Peter Drucker, Duran, all the quality gurus focused on uh, management. And we have swung the pendulum so far the other way that we're so focused on leadership now that leaders don't know how to manage. Hmm. And we, we've, we've kind of neutered the, the management piece out of the leadership part. And so... Uh, and we need both. It isn't a matter of management or leadership. It's just that we, we've we kind of defined in the church this formula that management and leadership are inversely proportional. The more you lead, the less you manage. The more you manage, the less you lead. And it's just not true. That's why I would go back to this idea of the monomaniac on a mission. You think Jack Welch, as CEO, managed less than he did when he was younger? Steve Jobs, did he manage less when he was younger? Bill Gates, did he manage less when he was younger? It's just a matter of how we uh, play out the management when we get older. Um, I got a couple more, but I don't want to. Yeah, no, I'm going to break this down. I want to I want to break it down responsibility and talk about leadership versus management. One thing, you know, that that I was trying to think about a a practical application on mission. And, uh, you know, I read a lot of books. You do. You read a lot of books as a, as a leader. But one of them, and I had him on my podcast oh, a year or two ago, John Burke's Imagine Heaven. When I read that book, and it's a mashup of near-death experiences and scriptural teachings on eternity, most of it on heaven, a little bit on on the afterlife and people who had hellish experiences, but my goodness, talk about turn up the spiritual temperature in my heart to remind me what's at stake in every single relationship. That was that was an example, I think, to me, because, you know, we you can go stand in a parking lot and watch people come in. You can go see parents drop off their little toddlers in your preschool ministry. But, you know, visualizing eternity for people who live in this world can be hard. And I think John's book, Imagine Heaven, did that as well as any book has ever done that for me. And like moved me to tears and just brought a real urgency that, yeah, Jesus, 
you know, wants to spend eternity with people. And this stuff is real. And uh, that, that's, that's a reminder I think all of us in leadership and in ministry need. Um, so that's an example. If you have that book on your bookshelf or you want to, we'll link to it in the show notes. You can go back to that episode. It was fascinating to me. Okay, so your second characteristic that Rick overleft and that characterized nuclear reactors was responsibility and ownership. I mean, just, just to push back a little bit, Todd, I think a lot of people would say it's irresponsible to give that much responsibility to a 22-year-old. Like, you know, you could blow this thing up. You could, you know, if a, let, let's think about it. It's a nuclear navy. It's not even here, go run the youth group. Not that that's not important. That's really important. But I mean, if you mess that up as a 22-year-old, you could blow up a city and kill like tens of thousands of people. True? Right. Yeah. So how do you, how do you push down responsibility and ownership to a group of young people who are straight out of college. Now, you've got a good selection process, you got the top 1%, the whole deal, but like how how do you how did they navigate that? Yeah, and that's that's why we can't just take each part of a culture in isolation. Like at Naval Reactors, the hiring thing was one piece, the giving people lots of responsibility, young was a piece, but supervision um one of our key things was, you know, whether you want to call it supervision, coaching, mentoring, um, you know, in I'll give you this distinctive at naval reactors throughout the organization, the supervisory ratio was about one to 10, one supervisor for every 10 people in marketplace. Typically, it's about one to 20. In the church, it's one to 100. OK. And it, it just go full-time equivalent staff people. It's about mm-hmm. one to a hundred to the attendance. And what we get even one step harder is volunteer, like a children's teacher. Well, that's kind of a supervisor, but it's really a temporary supervisor just for an hour a week. Mm-hmm. So we've got this one to a hundred supervisory ratio. And then we've kind of got these part-time, I'll call them supervisors, that if they got to be connected and get what we're doing and all that sort of thing. So there, there's definitely a challenge in ministry on the supervision part, but let me jump back to naval reactors. I came into an environment at age 22 where the, the, you know, I've got a supervisor who's talking to me and developing me and coaching me every day. Like the guy that I went to work with, John Michaels, John had been with Rick over when he started the nuclear Navy. John had worked on every nuclear submarine project since the Nautilus, the first Hmm. one. So I could sit down with John and get into a conversation and he'd say, you know, if you go out there to safe number 34 in the third drawer back on the, in the back, you're going to find this file on such and such. And the, in, in the NR way, the investment of time and energy in coaching and supervision, they were going to let me get in trouble if I needed to, but it was going to be right there with a supervisor and coach to pick me up or guide me or direct me in the right way. So, you know, we, we just had an, an incredible coaching and support mechanism with supervision, I guess is what I would say. So again, you know the church world intimately uh, and the one to a hundred, I would say we talked about pendulum swings already. If anything, in the last fifteen years, the pendulum has swung to leaner staffing in churches, not 
fatter staffing, that whole idea that less than 50% of your budget should go to staffing. You know, it used to be 60-70%. And I've seen so many churches just pare down staffing. You know, a church of 1,000 used to have 25 or 30 staff. Now it's typical to see 12 or 15. Are we, are we you know, uh, doing ourselves harm in, in doing that? Or like, how would you get into a better coaching ratio in the church and still keep the the fundamentals financially healthy? I think it's a really good question, Carrie. And I, I think, you know, things ebb and tide in different directions. I, sure. where my brain goes on that question immediately is, is rather than, is it getting better or worse? It's in each, you know, for each church, the question is how are we providing coaching and supervision, like what is our mechanism for doing it? Wh- whether it's one to a hundred or one to two hundred, or whether it's the staff, um, I I think if we come back to this management and leadership thing, you know, mm-hmm. if leadership's kind of the high level, are we doing the right things, and the management's the, are we doing it the right way kind of thing? Um, the what we're really talking about here is that we are relying a whole lot on management functions to happen through volunteers. Yes, we are. And how I think where our, in my opinion, where our void is, is we've been on this 30 year pendulum swing where the sexy thing is leadership. Yep. And we've got a whole lot of leaders who don't know how to manage. So my question is, as we go to a more empowered area of team based ministry with volunteers who are doing the management piece, what happens when we've got a void at the I'll say the paid professional staff side of it on the management piece. Mm. You know, how do leaders that don't know how to manage lead people who have to manage? Yeah. And so I where where my brain goes is what does it look like to make sure that at that, you know, the, the people who are waking up every day, we'll we'll say for right now the paid professionals, how do we make sure that there is a an element that's being provided there for the management, you know, the oversight of the management part. I just want to, I want to keep drilling down on that, but let's go back to where we started with mission. And you said, you know, we didn't really need to articulate the mission because it was so deeply embedded. And I would say that's true of the culture, which is the NR way, right? Right. Right. Do you think in a church that has uh, a crystal clear mission, vision, and culture and strategy where it's defined it's integrated throughout the organization, that that really helps with good management. Because I've found as we've gotten a lot better at crystallizing our culture, how we do it, crystallizing our strategy, this is the way we do it. And we can teach that throughout our church as it's grown. Management has gotten a lot better. Is that a a normal correlation? And I know it's a lot bigger than that. I'm just curious. I think it absolutely is. I I think you can't separate that clarity from kind of the cultural norm that you're talking about. And the stronger that cultural norm is, um, the better. I I think part of our challenge, Carrie, is you know I think appropriately over the last decade. There's been a whole lot of focus and even consulting firms that have popped up to help people discern their, you know, let's go figure out our mission, vision, values piece. Okay. If I come back to this, you know, I'll I'll call the Apostle Paul a a monomaniac on a mission. Okay. Mm -hmm. The the Apostle Paul didn't need to go through some kind of consulting process with vision, values, and 
and mission sort of thing. He was a monomaniac on a mission. Steve Jobs didn't need to do that. Jack Welch doesn't need to do that. I think our challenge is um, when that strongly driven culture is coming from the lead person, right? that's when I think the management part you're talking about is really going to be naturally strong. I think when the, 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 we'll call it the executive leadership team isn't strongly the ones that, 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 that culture is emanating from them. I, I think that what you see in churches is just drifting. I mean, you can go come up yeah. with the best statements, but I don't know that uh, if that lead team isn't absolutely sold out to it. You know, if I just use Admiral Rickover as a link, Rickover just for 63 years lived and breathed the NR way. He was the key champion of it, the keeper of it. Um, I mean, to give you perspective, um, every technical document that would go out in Able Reactors, the Admiral would read a one-page summary of it. And when you drafted a letter, a technical letter to go out, you held your breath for a couple of hours to see if you were going to get summoned to the admiral's office on it, you know, to give an account for things. Wow. And I'm not arguing that that's what churches ought to do. What I'm saying is there is a cult-like culture that from the top down, it is constantly reinforced. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what we do is we're really good at going and getting the consulting thing done to get our vision, values, beliefs, and vision in place. And then I'm not sure that the senior leadership's really the monomaniacs that are from the top down driving it and living it out. And then we wonder why we drift. I think that's a really good point, too. It's what I say to my team. What do you roll out of bed thinking about, passionate about every day? And that is so, so, so important for people. How did you learn leadership and management? Like, how did you, how is that ingrained in you in the nuclear Navy? Yeah, it's, you know, again, it comes back to that 22 year old thing. What Rickover, again, it's another Rickoverism. Mm. We're in, we're all in the military. He would not allow Naval reactors people to wear military uniforms. And the reason was as a 22 year old, I would have to go into battle with admirals on on issues. If I'm wearing a military uniform, I can't go into battle with, you know, a person that's been in the military for 30 years. So the first thing that absolutely naval reactors did with us was throw us into more responsibility than what we felt like we could handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be sent on trips by myself to places to, you know, assess things. Um, I'd be part of assessment teams going and looking at things. Um, you know, you, you, you would be held account to your supervisor on things. It was a very, um, on the job training approach. Um, you know, we had a school element. They sent us off for six months of graduate school. There was an on-site go to one of our operating nuclear reactor prototypes for five or six weeks to, you know, kind of get hands-on training, you know, go to sea for a couple of weeks. There, there's an entire training pipeline that's there. But at the end of the day, it's on the job training. Um, when I was 29, Terry, this is kind of to give you perspective. Um, once you get past that five years, you're part of the cult-like culture, the five years, and you know, then I'm staying as a 27-year-old. Well, you knew what the career path was at that point. If you wanted to promote to be one of the senior leaders here, you needed to go out and run one of the field activities around the country, one of the labs, one of the shipyards. You wanted to get out to a field activity to get the hands on. So I knew at age 27, I want to go run one of our field activities. 
Well, at age 29, I get sent out to oversee one of the field activities. And so for six years, I was out overseeing a, a for several of the years, an industrial activity of about five or 6,000 people. And they're, you know, at age 30 to 32, overseeing an industrial activity of 5,000 people, uh, it not only very rapidly develops you on the job, uh, you know, it takes a couple of years off your life too. Yeah, but, it does. You know, at, at every turn, it's on the job training. It's putting people into situations that, uh, that, you're uncomfortable putting them into, and you might think they might not even be able to accomplish, but then the process of, you know, the confidence that's built in doing it and the experience that's gained, that's really the development pipeline. You know, it's interesting if you look at um, even parenting today, and there's so much, and I think it's a good thing to have so much more safety, but parents tend to be uh, very cautious, right? We don't want to get you injured at a playground. We don't want you to get hurt so you can't ride a bike etc cetera, etc cetera. but i know you know from a different generation we got thrown into that stuff and sometimes people got hurt but even the way we raised our kids you know they ran in the backyard and away they went and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think about my young days as a leader um in law you know my first year in law they threw me in court every day and i was in there as a newbie up against guys and women who were three or four years on the other side of the bar. And like, I just didn't know any better. And it went okay. We had, we had a really good time in court. It was fantastic. And even preaching. How did I learn preaching? Well, I came up here and I had a retired guy supervising me. And he's just like, well, we're going to pretend you're not a student. You just go in and do the work of a senior leader as though you were full-time and we paid you full-time. So I did. I just went and I led like I was the senior guy, not the student guy. And, you know, it's amazing what happens. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I, I, wonder, I wonder if sometimes we're a little hyper-cautious and we say no to younger leaders. Do you see that in the church or what would you, how would you respond to that? I'm, I'm guilty of it. I mean, I've, yeah. I was executive pastor and now I lead Exponential. And I, I'm, I have to constantly check myself because I'm more cautious and more reluctant uh, with other young people than than how naval reactors ever treated me. And so I, I do think we've got to, you know, just maybe be even uncomfortable at times putting people into positions. You know, I I have to just get myself past asking the question, you know, in, in engineering, risk is defined as uh, the the probability of something happening multiplied by the consequences of it happening. Hmm. And so risk is equal to probability times consequence. And we let ourselves, I think, too often get consumed in the thinking about the, pro oh, what if, what if, what if? That's a probability thing. And sometimes we lose sight of, well, what is the worst possible consequence of what could happen if we do this? Like, does the world fall apart if this Right. No, you know what? I've never heard that formula. That is, we'll put that in the show notes. Like, that's a really good formula. Say it again, just one more time. Risk, yeah, risk times consequences. Is, uh, it's it's well, risk equals the okay. probability of something right. happening multiplied by the consequence of it happening. So, if you've got something that has super high probability, okay, mm -hmm. the sun coming up tomorrow has a pretty good probability of happening. The consequence of the sun coming up tomorrow, well. <laughs> there's not a lot of consequence yeah. to it. So, you know, even a high risk with a low consequence gives you 
I'm sorry, a high probability with a low consequence is a low risk. There's no risk to it. So you, what we really have to do is look where risk is high. I'm sorry, where probability is high and where consequence is high. If the probability is something- That's when you really got to look at it. That's when you got to really pay attention to things is when probability and consequence well, are high. Well, my guess is if we adopted that as a formula in our leadership, we would empower volunteers at a much stronger level. We'd empower right. young staff at a much- like. When you really look at it that formulaically, what is the probability and what are the consequences? So it doesn't work. So, you know, it wasn't an optimal day. So what? Like, just let them do it. Let me share with you a technique that the Admiral used at Naval Reactors, actually. Um, We were very territorial. This whole idea of responsibility and ownership. When you worked at Naval Reactors, you owned something. And ownership Mm -hmm. for Rickover meant you felt like you were going to have it the rest of your life. Like you're going to bear the consequences. So we would get into daily lots of fights. Now, ironically, biblically, at the end of the day, we're all friends. But we would just adamantly fight for our position on things. And every once in a while, we'd have to end up in the admiral's office where the admiral would be the tiebreaker between people on the fights we were having. And here's what the admiral would do when we'd get into a fight. He'd have somebody go to the whiteboard and he'd have them make three columns. The first column was, what is the worst possible thing that could happen Mm. if we do this? And here's what's interesting, Carrie. We usually could all be united on what the worst possible thing was, mm-hmm. no matter what side you were on. Then the admiral would say, what's the least problem? What's the least significant thing that's going to happen out of this? And ironically, we could be united on what the least likely thing was. Right. And then he would have you go to the middle column and say, now, what is the most probable thing that's going to happen if we do this? And the probable thing is always somewhere between those two bookends of what's the least thing that can happen and what's the least thing that's going to happen. And somehow that most probable question had a way of uniting people on a path forward. That's fascinating. This This is so good. Another thing that you said is you told me about avoiding outcomes based leadership. Um, was it taught on the job or why is that important? Yeah, we, um, the outcomes-based leadership, we, we had a list of, I don't know, 10 to 12 things, Carrie, I can go through some of them, which are things like no news is not necessarily good news. It can be a warning signal. Now, that's counterintuitive to how as leaders, we, you know, we want there to be no, no news. You know, like if we're not hearing anything, that's good. Got to be good. For us... That's what we would call one dimension of outcomes-based leadership. Outcomes-based leadership meaning, hey, if I'm not hearing anything, I'm going to assume the outcome's probably pretty good. Right. Okay. And so we would we tried to live the mantra, no news is not necessarily good news. Let's go actively look for input instead of waiting, you know, to hear bad news later. Um, here's another example under outcomes, avoiding outcomes-based management. And this is subtle but significantly different than how we function in the world and especially in the church. So if I said to you the difference between assume it wrong and prove it right versus assume it right and prove it wrong, okay, there's a huge difference in those two approaches. I call it the needle in the haystack syndrome. 
If you say to somebody, hey, go see if you can find a needle in that huge haystack over there, they're going to come back. Most people are going to come back a little bit later and say, no, I don't think there's one in there. Yeah. If you say to somebody, there is a needle in that haystack and your life depends on you finding it, bring it back to me. Okay. That's the difference between assume it wrong, prove it right, and prove it right, assume it wrong. Too often, we have a mindset in how we operate on things that we just assume things are right because we haven't heard anything or we don't know any different than right. that. Okay. Now, if I just take these first two, no news is not necessarily good news and assume it wrong, prove it right. We don't want to live in fear. We don't want to live like always worried about everything going on. This is why you got to come back to the issue of risk being probability times consequence. Some things are more important than others. Okay. Mm -hmm. And here's the application for the church. If, if Craig Groeschel's got this massive Christmas Eve production that 28 different campuses are going to see by, you know, by live streaming. Okay. You got to ask yourself the question, what's the probability of something going wrong? Okay. We can think that through, but what's more importantly, what is the consequence of something going wrong? Okay. And most of the people on his team would say, oh my goodness, that's that we can't bear that. We can't mm -hmm. bear something to go stakes wrong. Stakes are high. Stakes are high. Okay. When the stakes are high, avoiding outcome-based leadership is vitally important because when the stakes are high, if you assume no news is good news, right. and if you assume everything's right, you know, unless something goes wrong. Right. Signal you're, worked you're, last week. We don't need to test it this week. That's exactly right. You're going to get yourself in trouble if, uh, and, I, and to this day, Kerry, the funny thing is I drive my team crazy because with the NR way, there's a backup plan to the backup plan to the backup plan. So, you know, I want to go see what's the back, you know, what's plan B if plan A doesn't work kind of thing. And our challenge as church leaders back to that one to 100 supervisory ratio is we have to be very judicious at what we're going to apply this added discipline to. Um, all this race through, you know, challenge assumptions and continually ask why. Start with the end in mind, but pay a whole lot of attention to the details in getting there. Mm. Um, know what's actually going on versus how things should be going on. Um, a really, I'd, I'd say a huge one, Carrie, is understand the why. Work on causes, not symptoms. Human nature, yeah. even when there's problems is to work on the symptoms of something and not the underlying causes. So uh, outcomes-based management or leadership is find it, fix it. There's a problem. How fast can you get it fixed? Right. It, it's kind of like that toy when we were kids where it had the bopper game where something bops up, how fast do you bop it down? Yeah, it bops yeah. Another place. That's unfortunately how we treat problems a lot of times. You know, pound it down, pound it down, pound Rackable. it down. Mm -hmm. You know, whack-a-mole, there you go, without going after the, the causes. So um, there's a whole series of additional things that make up this concept, but but all of them are rooted in um, sort of that principle of, of some things are more important than others. And on the ones that have significant consequences, if they don't go right, we have to have a bias to how we get more involved in knowing that they're, they're going to happen the right way.
when um, here's a question for you. Do you think, because you do see the church, you got four over 4,000 church leaders coming to Exponential. You have a pretty good view of the, the church. But do you think as a general trend, you see church leaders taking too many risks, too few risks, or the wrong risks? What would you say? Boy, that's a really hard one to answer. Yeah, that's I know. I'm, I'm asking myself that. Are we are we too um, risky? Are we not risky enough? Or are we just risking the wrong stuff? Yeah. See, I, I the problem for me is I, I, it's hard for me to answer that question without answering it through my own wiring, which is a risk taker who wants, you know, entrepreneurial wants to see things. Yeah. So my, my bias is, oh, we don't take enough risks kind of thing. See, that's where um, I land. I don't think we take the enough or I think we take the wrong ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's definitely where my bias would be that we don't take enough. Um, yeah. And I'm not even sure that we give enough thought to the question even is part of the problem. Mm. Too. That's true. And you know, the wrong risks, I don't know what an example of the wrong risks would be, but you know, we think, <laughs> you know, my wife and I talk about this, Andy Stanley, we're part of North Point world. You know, we, uh, we believe in guardrails, we have guardrails or whatever. Right. And the nice thing about a guardrail is, you know, you're long ways away from an accident and death before you, you hit one. Um, but we've realized even some of our boundaries are so conservative that we probably restrict ourselves a little too much at times. And so uh, I would just love to see, I think we're moving into an era in the church where we need more experimentation. I think completely, you know, earlier this year, uh, at the beginning of the year, you published a uh, seven disruptive trends for 2018. Yeah. And there is absolutely no question if those are correct trends, like let's assume those are trends that are, are happening. Um, those trends require more risk taking, you know, yes. things like, you know, church beyond the big box and, you know, mm -hmm. pop-up churches and, you know, more decentralized church expressions. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of trends out there right now that I think most people could agree are going to put church leaders outside their comfort zone uh, to take some risks on. Yeah, and that don't even necessarily require millions of dollars. I mean, I think these, it's really attitude rather than resources it, that's going to determine I, that. I think you're exactly right. I, I, what's exciting about the future trends in the church right now are they don't take a lot of money. In fact, you could argue they, yeah. they don't take much money. But what it is going to take, it's going to challenge the status quo of the scorecard of pastors in how they mm. normally keep score on things. Yeah. That's where the risk is going to come in, is it's going to feel very uncomfortable to pastors to try and jump into some of these new trend things when it's it doesn't directly go to their normal scorecard of how they measure success. No, I think I think that's very true. And and just to um, underscore what you said, the mega church leaders I've talked to about this would say it's actually easier for smaller churches to pivot and experiment than it is for them, because they have to turn this gigantic thing to to do it. And you know, you can just have a meeting Tuesday and start at Wednesday. It it's interesting. I've been in several different gatherings over the last eighteen months, Carrie, of prominent mega churches, you know, churches that you'd say are kind of out there on the edge of pioneering things. 
And when this conversation comes up, this, this idea that kind of the metaphor, the difference between a speedboat and an aircraft carrier, you know, an aircraft mm -hmm. carrier doesn't turn fast, but a speedboat can run circles around it. And how does the church maneuver into this future? Here's where every single time the conversations migrated to is the idea of the larger pioneering churches starting to have almost like R&D branches where they, yeah. they set aside 10% of you know, the resources for outside the bounds of the normal control structures to try and and pioneer new things, you know, without the constraint of the existing. So it's going to be interesting to see if we enter a season here where a whole bunch of churches are doing that. That would be great. I would welcome that. Well, I know people are going to want to access the show notes and we'll have those available for people. Uh, where is the easy place for people to find the things that you're involved in online? I mean, Exponential and tell us where else. Yeah, Exponential.org is all things Exponential. And then ToddWilson.org. Uh, I'll even post some of the notes, additional ones even from here that we didn't get to talk about. There's uh, there's a bunch of fun tools that, uh, that we used in the nuclear Navy that uh, would be fun for you and I to talk about at some point that... Uh, well... Maybe there'll be a part two, and we'll, we'll include that in the show notes as well. Todd, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Carrie. Thank you. It's been great being with you. Well, that just about melted my brain. And if you want show notes, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 183. You will find them there, or you can go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just search episode 183 or Todd's name, Todd Wilson. You'll find it there. He is the founder of Exponential and has done so many other amazing things with his life. The guy is brilliant. And uh, you're going to want to get some notes, including some of the stuff we talked about in the podcast. So that's kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 183. I have been so excited about next week's guest for a long time. Uh, it was a lot of work to set up this interview. He's an incredibly busy guy, but we got it done. And uh, Brian... Houston is one of my favorite leaders. The more time, you know, sometimes the more time you spend with somebody, the more you're like, eh, I don't know. The more time I spend with Brian Houston, and I've been privileged to spend a bit of time with him, uh, the more I just love the guy. He is the real deal. He's authentic. And uh, he gets pretty honest uh, next week. And we talk about everything from his burnout to I wanted to drill down more on a conversation we had about like, how does Hillsong get and keep so many amazing leaders. And then we talk about like his sermon prep, his personal discipline and habits. Well, that again, subscribers, you'll get this next week. Uh, here's an excerpt from my conversation with Brian Houston. I've never been to a leadership school and I have to be honest, I haven't read a lot of leadership books. Sure. So, so I feel like, look, to me, there's different dynamics, I guess, but I've always been big on you know, looking at other people and watching how other people lead and watch how other people do things and, and growing through that. And I think, you know, it's a learning on the job in the sense that, uh, you know, wherever God's got you in life right now, there's going to be decisions that have to be made and challenges that are going to come your way. And if we don't ever increase our capacity and expand, then that's when people will burn out and so on. So, I found it's almost been um, forced on me to keep expanding and growing and <laughs> build build bridges and build my capacity. And you know, I look at younger people, and to be honest, one of the things that concerns me is just uh, how small their capacity is with pressure and stress. And I look at younger leaders, younger pastors. And I'm looking at what's stressing them, and uh, you know what pressure points are 
are uh, really making them do it tough. And I'm thinking you can you're going to have to increase your capacity, uh, right? Because when God's really got you in the place where He wants you, with the pressures and stresses are going to be that much further. And so I think you know over the years for me, it's just been growing capacity on the job. The things that probably used to stress me when I was younger now it's uh, you know it's not a big deal whatsoever. And so I think just life itself does that. So that drops next Tuesday. I hope you will listen. I'm so excited for that to hit the air. And we've got, oh, so much goodness coming up. Over the next little while, not only do we have Brian Houston, but we have got Greg Atkinson, one of the most downloaded episodes of all time on this podcast. And we're almost 5.3 million in. Uh, Greg is back with first-time guests, Tim Elmore, Daniel M., Jessica Beeler, we have Nick Vojcic coming up. I'm so excited for that. We got teams from Life Church, my good friend Kevin Jennings. Oh, and guess some other people who confirmed for this year. Levi Lusco, Brian Carter, Nancy Duarte, Rachel Cruz, uh, Larry Osborne is coming back, and recently, Patrick Lencioni. So that's coming up this year. That's what you get when you subscribe. We are so pumped for this year's lineup. And uh, in the meantime, I really do hope this helped you. If you're looking to train your team, there's no better choice than trainedup.church. Make sure you check that out and use the coupon code CARRY to get 10% when you are checking out. You get that for life for whatever you happen to get through trainedup.church. Thanks for listening. You guys are amazing. And uh, wherever this finds you this week, in a good place, in a not-so-good place, or in the in-between where a lot of us live, I really hope this helped. And I want you to know how much I appreciate you. I actually pray for you. I'm encouraged by you. Thanks for leading with heart. And I really do hope that this helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.